and welcome to the 24th episode of The Morning Rage. I'm your host, Jen Prentice. And I'm your co-host, Lauren O'Keefe. This is not your mom's morning show. It's a space where we pop off about all things culture, society, and politics in order to help you unpack your beliefs, feel more confident in sharing your voice, and today continue our series on mental health with an interview and conversation about how to help children struggling with mental health issues. This is definitely something we wanted to cover when we talked about this month of mental health. There is more information coming out about children and mental health issues and how we can help them, but there's not enough. Doesn't feel like there's very many resources and it's also nuanced. Wouldn't you agree, Jen? Absolutely. I got to sit down with my friend, Sarah Heath, who works with military families to help children and parents get the services that they need whenever children specifically are struggling with mental health issues. And I think this conversation expands the definition of what we would consider mental health issues for children. Mm -hmm. I talk about my oldest son's sensory processing issues. Sarah's son struggles with ADHD. So not only is she working with families whose children have mental health issues, really what we call them in the interview are exceptional children. So she works with families who have exceptional children, but she also has a 17 year old son who she has shepherded and raised and parented through school. So a lot of really good stuff in there. And if the technical side of this podcast recording isn't quite up to par, because we've gotten pretty good, right? On our technical side, I I would, I would like to say that for ourselves. I would like to agree for ourselves. (laughs) Okay, great. But we are fully on zoom today, right, Jen? Yes. And my interview with Sarah was fully on Zoom. So if the audio (laughs) quality sounds a little off this podcast, we promise that, well, actually, no, Lauren, we don't promise that next week it'll be back on track. (laughs) I think that our lives are officially just taking off. And I think we're on Zoom for like two weeks. It's very possible that we may have more Zoom pods, which is great. And it's a very sacred space for us. And we like to do this every week. So we're going to find ways to do that. And one of those is being on Zoom because I am on vacation. You can tell people, let's make this a tease. You can tell people where you are in just a minute. It's like, where in the world is Lauren (gasps) O'Keefe? I loved Carmen Sandiego. What a time in television. Do you remember when the Today Show used to do where in the world is Matt Lauer? I mean, is it appropriate for me to mention that? (laughs) I'm not taking that out. Anyone needs to know where Matt Lauer is. (laughs) It's a question we're all asking ourselves now. This leads very nicely into popping off. So Jen, would you like to pop off first? I really, really would. Last week, I saved my popping off because your pop off was so good. And if you guys didn't hear that popping off from last week, wow, it was a good one. We went hard after Disney. We did, but I think it was a productive conversation for all of us. Last week, what I wanted to pop off about is still appropriate for this week. I want to talk about the meatless movement. Oh, tell me more. So the Biden administration is receiving a lot of pushback from Republicans on their climate change plan. Not only because, unfortunately, many Republicans don't believe in climate change. Which yes, is- which we should have an episode <laughs> 
that. It's a whole separate thing to pop off about, but True. they think that uh, Papa Joe is trying to tell them what to eat and shut down the meat industry or restrict the amount of red meat specifically that Americans can eat. So, okay, let's talk about what's the issue with red meat, like with climate change, what's the issues? Red meats, particularly beef with lamb being like a close-ish second, they rank at the top of the list when it comes to the highest carbon footprint and detrimental effects on the environment. They produce, honestly, I'm gonna throw out some numbers here that I don't really know what they mean, but... Producing a kilogram of beef emits 60 kilograms of greenhouse gases and requires over 900 gallons of water. Whoa. In addition to its, you know, harmful effects on climate change, eating two servings of red meat per week has been shown to increase your risk of cardiovascular disease. Yeah, it's not ideal all all the way around, right? It's not a good look for red meat. Big meat is not happy about this information. So the backlash started when Biden announced his climate plan that has the goal of cutting greenhouse gas emissions in half by 2030. Unfortunately, his plan did lack a lot of the specifics of how America will accomplish that goal. So when something lacks specificity in our world, Mm-hmm. Everyone, Republicans, Democrats, yeah. they like to pontificate and yes. speculate about what could happen. And there were a lot of media outlets that started to speculate on what it would take to reach this goal of cutting greenhouse gases in half by 2030. Someone at the Daily Mail, which is a more liberal media outlet, wrote mm-hmm. an article speculating that in order to accomplish the goal, we would have to really radically change agricultural practices, which is likely true. And that we would have to reduce the amount of red meat that Americans eat to about one hamburger per month. Republicans went crazy. Oh yeah, you don't take hamburgers away from Americans. No. It's like just the worst thing you could do is take people's hamburgers away in this country. I don't even know if this is a Republican Democrat issue, actually. This might just be. I think it's an American issue. (laughs) But specifically, Republicans took to Twitter and Fox News, so two V reliable sources, (laughs) to express their displeasure. Republican senators said very mature things like calling Joe Biden the hamburglar. Oh, no. And they demanded that he stay out of their kitchen. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the reality is that Joe's plan said nothing about restricting Americans' diets. He barely mentioned the farming industry in general in his climate plan. However, to my original point, I think this is something that all of us need to be more cognizant of. And unfortunately, it's not just red meat that is a problem. It's also, and look, Lauren, this this hits me hard. The bad news is that cheese and chocolate are also pretty darn high in greenhouse gas emissions. Wow. So some things that I found for eating in a more climate-friendly way, swap red meat for bison meat. Ooh, interesting. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to eat cheese, feta, chev, camembert, brie, and mozzarella. Camembert. Look, it's a I'm stinky a, I'm cheese, a though. American. It's, I like to say camembert. Stinky. <laughs> I don't think anyone wants to have the camera, but I, that's good to know that like feta, goat cheese, like some of these things are a little lower on the emissions. I have actually started to think a little bit more about how 
We don't eat a ton of red meat, but I definitely eat more than one hamburger a month. Chick-fil-A is really happy about this information, right? Chick-fil-A is like, all right, let's bring down big hamburger. What a perfect opportunity for Chick-fil-A to draw in a more liberal crowd. They can really embrace it. Bison meat, feta, chev, brie, mozzarella, camembert. It's great. Okay, so now we have some options to swap out. Also, let's stop calling people hamburglers. I just don't know if that's... (laughs) And Joe doesn't care about getting into your kitchen. Yeah. (laughs) That sounded weird. Okay. Lauren, what are you popping off about this week? All right. Well, we got big Joe Biden energy today because I'm also popping off about something that happened this week. So on May 13th, the CDC announced that fully vaccinated people could stop wearing masks, like in most settings, including crowded indoor gatherings. So this is, of course, only like guidance offered by the CDC as states really set these COVID policies. But Joe Biden announced he took to Instagram and was like, if you're vaccinated, you can stop wearing masks. And it's like, Joe, really, like, thanks for that. But like, that was such bad information to come out to a country that has individual state policies where you cannot just stop wearing your mask for one. And for two, how do you know if people are vaccinated or not? And they're not wearing masks. I mean, most people that aren't vaccinated would like to not wear their masks either. So (laughs) yes, how how are you going to know when you're in a crowded bar? It's not like we're going to put like a sign on each other. Like that would add so many issues. You're going to call out the people vaccinated. I just think it's great on one hand that the CDC has looked at real scientific information, this is what we look to them for, is guidelines. They're finally saying, all right, the science proves that if you have been vaccinated, your chances of getting a serious version of COVID or even just a mild version and spreading it is very, very minuscule. So realistically, if you're vaccinated, you don't need to wear a mask. But policy-wise, With where we're at as a country, I feel like we all finally got to a place where everyone's like, okay, we get it. We have to wear masks. That's just how it is. So for this information to come out right now, when only I think a third of the country is actually vaccinated, this is like a really bad setup. And who I really feel bad for is restaurants. Oh, yes. Because restaurants don't, they don't really have the ability to set their own policies they're basing all their policies on the state and they're being highly trafficked by the ABC and by the health department. So they can't just be like, all right, well, the president said we don't have to wear masks. If you're vaccinated, knock yourselves out. Like they still have to follow these protocols. And the average person going into a restaurant is going to be upset that they have to wear one. Why don't you tell people where you're at right now, Lauren? We are in Hawaii and we're on the island of Maui. And as you know, Jen, because I think you're planning on going to Hawaii this summer, it is like very complicated to get to Hawaii in terms of their entrance plans. I mean, we had to go through so many hoops and take COVID test 72 hours in advance before getting here, have a negative result. Then you have to get a second rapid test when you land. Unless you're vaccinated, you can not do the second test. So everybody that's come to the islands visiting 
has been tested for COVID before coming at least twice, like one to two times, or they're vaccinated. It's a very interesting experience, but they do have very strict policies here, mask wearing, social distancing. It's not like you did all of these things and then you come onto this island, everyone's like COVID doesn't exist. It is very strict here, even in public places. So with this information coming out while we were here, a lot of people had reactions to it. Everyone wants to be on vacation and think that this isn't happening. We don't have COVID anymore. We can all not wear our masks outside in 82 degree weather by the pool. Just not true. I was at a restaurant the other night. We were sitting at the bar, which is such a fun experience sitting at a bar again, (laughs) eating dinner. And this gentleman walked in with no mask and he had an altercation with the manager of the restaurant. He refused to wear a mask while he was walking around in the restaurant. He was very, very upset with her that based on the information that came out this week that he shouldn't have to because he's been vaccinated. Who knows if he has, no one's asking to see his vaccination card, (laughs) but like he says that. (laughs) So we assume everyone's telling the truth, right? I feel like there are certain settings where I would feel comfortable not wearing my mask inside and I am vaccinated. But I still Mm -hmm. feel like, you know, going to the grocery store, I'm going to be kind and just wear my mask. Also, I probably won't get the flu this year and a lot of other diseases by wearing my mask. So Mm -hmm. great. I'm here for that. I went to a winery this week, very small winery. The day after this announcement was made, I had my mask. I walk into the tasting room and no one in the tasting room has their mask on. And the winemaker said, oh, if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear your mask. And I was like, well, I am. I said, but do you need me to like show you my card? I have a picture of it on my phone. I felt very unsure about what I was supposed to do. Yeah, at this point, it just feels like just common decency and respect to just wear it. I mean, we've gotten so used to this at this point. I love the fact that if you're all vaccinated, you can be together and gather in people's homes again, and we can feel more comfortable doing that and engaging with each other that we know. But at the same time, in big public spaces where there are policies, just wear the mask. I think it was really poor timing that, especially from the president, like the CDC can say this, based on scientific evidence. That's what we look to them for. But for the president to say, hey guys, guess what? You don't have to wear your masks anymore. I just think, oh my gosh, you've just caused like such a mess for so many states, so many restaurants. The poor manager at this restaurant who's saying, sir, that's the state policy. We're monitored by all of these other entities. We can't just willy-nilly take our our masks off and also just trust that everybody who takes it off has been vaccinated. Oh my gosh, it's just like such a It's going to be a real mess for a little while, but what in life is not? (laughs) Speaking of messy, since you are in Hawaii this week, I wanted to give you a little break. So I sat down and did an interview with my friend, Sarah Heath, about children and mental health issues. We are going to play that interview in a minute. I think this conversation is going to be really helpful, not just to parents struggling to raise kids who have some issues around mental health or ADHD, or in my case, my son has some sensory processing issues. I also think that it will be really helpful to just any parent. We talk about motherhood and the shame that can come around motherhood, whether you aren't able to have 
have kids and feel shame over that, or you have kids and parenting isn't going the way that you thought it was going to go, or your child does have some problems that need to be addressed and you place that shame back on yourself. So I hope that this helps parents, but especially moms take a breath and realize that there are resources out there. There are people out there who can help. And we all just need to be honest about the fact that nothing looks as good in real life as it does on Instagram. We talk about that too, and how everything looks better on social media, but in parenting, a lot of people like to make their lives look very tidy and life is messy and hard and parenting, whether you are a parent or you want to be one is messy and hard. And we all just need to have more grace for ourselves and other people. So I'm going to play our interview with Sarah. We hope you guys enjoy. Hey everyone. I am so excited to be here with my friend, Sarah Heath today. Sarah is a training and curriculum specialist for the military, and she is going to explain to you all of the ways that she provides support for military families and their children who need services educationally, mental health wise. But the first and most important thing that you should know about Sarah is that she and I have been friends since seventh grade. She is also a faithful listener of the podcast. Can you explain to everyone exactly what you do for your career and then why you think it's so important to talk about children and mental health. I am a training and curriculum specialist for the military. I work for the military. I've been with military families for about the last nine years. Right now I work with children, young children. So before they start school, so anywhere from infants all the way to five years old, part of what I do in my role is I help families um, get supports that they need if they might be suspecting that there's a special need for their child, whether physical, developmental, um, mental health, behavioral, I can kind of link them to resources and things that are available. And then if they do have diagnoses or um, information from doctors or therapists, I help the teachers in the classrooms implement some of these accommodations. If it's a child, you know, with development, Developmental delays. We talk about what are some things we can do in the classroom. How can we help them um, learn how to feed themselves? How can we help them be more mobile? How can we help them engage with other kids in the classroom? So my educational background is I have a bachelor's degree in psychology. I have a master's degree in mental health counseling. Prior to my work with military families, I worked in higher education. Um, so I taught a little bit back when we lived back East. And then I also worked in the counseling office there. So I've been a helper for a lot of years. That's kind of my main role I see as a helper, an advocate. And I like to tell people I know a little bit about a lot of different things. I'm not a doctor. I know you guys have made this disclaimer too, especially this month talking about mental health. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychologist. I'm somebody who's worked with a lot of families. Um, my son has ADHD. So from a parent perspective, I know what it's like to kind of navigate through the system. I think it's important. You said, why is it important to talk about it? I think it's important because I think a lot of parents don't 
know where to start and what to do. We don't know what we don't know. I think, and you and I talked about this before, this is kind of where a lot of my rage came from in regards to this. There is a stigma. Everyone knows there's a stigma attached to mental health, right? In in adults, there's a stigma attached to it. We shouldn't need the help that we shouldn't feel that way, shouldn't be that way, shouldn't do those things, right? If you just try a little bit harder and just kind of pull yourself up and you can just, you know, work through and we all have things that we struggle with. And I think that stigma also translate to children um, with mental health. And again, if you've never been through that before, like I don't have ADHD, right? I have never experienced that before. I've never been through that before. So part of the, the issue and the not talking about it is we don't know what to do, right? The only way and where my education was super helpful um, with him was I knew what it was. I knew what it looked like. I knew what some of the signs and symptoms were. Um, so it wasn't a surprise for me when the diagnosis came, when all the things came. But as you know, if most parents don't study psychology or mental health, most parents don't have backgrounds in child development. How would you know some of these things? And how do you know what typical behavior, what's typical development and what's not, especially if you're a first time parent, um, if you have an only child, right, you don't really have a gauge or a context for it. Part of why it's important is to just get the stigma out because a lot of times as a parent of any child, it can feel lonely. It can feel like no, nobody gets it. Nobody has these problems that I have. Nobody struggles with the same thing. And we all struggle with stuff, especially during COVID and online school. We've all struggled just naming it. And you all have talked about this before too on your podcast, naming things gives us power to do something about it, right? Putting a name on something means it's real. It means it really exists. And now that I know what it is, I can do something about it and I can get help for myself or for my child. Like I said, the other thing too, that naming does when we have a name for it, there's a, there's a diagnosis for a reason, right? And there's a diagnosis because that means there's people that have come before you that have had those same struggles. And so that helps us as parents remember and individuals, people remember that you're not alone. You're not the only person that struggles with this. You're not the only person that has ever felt this way or had to deal with these things because there is a name for it. People have come before you and dealt with these things as well. Yes. Just parenting in general has so much shame or what you should do or what your child should be like. We have, at least in Western culture, placed so many shoulds around parenting. If you have a child who is struggling in some way, that often makes you as the parent think that you are not doing something right. Yes. And so there is a layer of shame that comes around that in the first place and yep. makes some people unwilling to even admit that there's a problem because yep. they're caught in a shame spiral of I'm not doing a good enough job parenting. Right. I should be able to figure this out by myself. But like you said, when you name it, then you can begin to do the research and pull in the resources that are needed to get the help. So for me personally, my oldest son, he is a highly sensitive child. And that Mm -hmm. is an actual term Mm -hmm. that can be applied to a number of children. It is a genetic trait. Some people are genetically more sensitive. Mm -hmm. They feel things, literally feel pain. 10 Mm to 50% more than the normal person. They are overstimulated much easier. Until about two years ago, I didn't know what 
was going on with my son. Mm -hmm. I just knew that he had a different reaction to certain things like food. He has some sensory Mm -hmm. processing issues around food. He doesn't like tags in his clothing. Mm -hmm. If he falls, even if it's a minor scrape, there is an explosive Mm -hmm. reaction to it. Mm -hmm. And until about two years ago, I didn't have a name for what it was. Someone recommended this highly sensitive child book to me, and Mm -hmm. it has changed the way that my husband and I parent him. That doesn't mean that we don't still have a lot of issues, even just these past couple weeks, some issues with friends have come up that we've had to deal Mm -hmm. with. But Mm -hmm. if you are unwilling to admit that there's an issue in the first place and not name it, you can't try to fix it. You can never really fix mental health issues. I don't think they're really fixed. Yes. You can manage them. You can't support it. Yes. And my goal, and I'm sure that it's your goal with your kids too, is to give them the coping skills so that they don't get into their Mm thirties and have to try to figure Mm -hmm. out how to manage their personalities or some of their issues that we all have. Absolutely. And, and, you know, talking about the, the shame and the guilt around um, being a parent of a child who's developmentally different, who's um, for whatever reason, different historically, if you think about it 50 years ago, a hundred years ago, when kids had these signs and symptoms, of course, they weren't called ADHD and autism back then, but kids would exhibit these signs and symptoms. And where was it always linked back to? I don't even know. Where was it, it always was, linked it back to? It was always linked back to usually the mother, most definitely the parent. So it was linked back to you didn't bond enough as a baby. You did something wrong in your pregnancy. Um, you didn't show them enough love. You didn't hug them enough. So all of these issues with children, and again, we've come very far, obviously in child development, but, you know, historically there's that shame and guilt that if there's something quote unquote wrong with your child, that means there's something wrong that you did or didn't do that's carried with us. Like that has been passed down and has carried on. And I think now in the age of social media and the Instagram and the pictures and the things and all the wonderful, beautiful, perfect people that we see. And I'm here like, you know, struggling to make it through the day with my kids. And I'm like, God, they don't have the problems I do, right? Like their kids are always on time for school and, you know, they brush their hair every day and listen and pose for pretty pictures. And there's the comparison, the shame, the guilt, all of that stuff is so strong in life, right? In adulthood. But I think especially in parenting. And it's just so unfortunate. And it's something that I really feel strongly about, like normalizing the hard days, normalizing the kids that don't do all the things they should, you know, normalizing the struggles that we have, because we all have them. We all have them, but it's just like the feeling of shame and guilt has literally been ingrained in our culture for hundreds of years. That is so good. I didn't even think about the fact that, yes, of course, there would be this additional layer of shame, particularly for moms. Of course, we would blame women for this. What, you know? Because we carry them. Oh, man. But you're right. In the age of social media, we have become a culture that is obsessed with Mm -hmm. an image and a brand and appearances, mental health issues, whether in ourselves or our children, any sort of struggle is not very pretty. It's messy and no one wants to show that. So the goal of this podcast, and I know the the goal of us talking is so that people feel a little less alone and can say, look, if your kid's struggling, if you're struggling to parent your kid, that's Mm -hmm. okay. 
there are other people who are struggling too. And there are resources. Yes. You can do something about this. Yes. So will you talk a little bit about when you first realized your son might be struggling with ADHD? What were some of the first things that you did to advocate for him and to get the resources and the help that you needed for him? Again, I think thanks to some of my educational background, I picked up on it pretty quickly. Um, When he was very, very little, just had trouble paying attention, staying on one task. Of course, the hyperactivity piece, um, he was very, busy. He, you know, had a hard time sitting still, would get distracted very easily. Impulse control was always an issue. Um, and so I, I knew pretty early on that that was probably a thing with things like ADHD, autism, some of those mental health and even developmental issues in children. They they can't get diagnosed until they're a little bit older. Like three is probably the youngest you would diagnose any child with something. Oftentimes it's not until they're in school, five, six, seven years old. We talked to um, his pediatrician. Thankfully we had a fantastic pediatrician. She was just really knowledgeable. She was a little bit older. She she was kind of like old school in some of her theories and like ways of, of parenting. The way they diagnose ADHD and autism and some other things is they kind of do it by figuring out what it's not. So they do a wide variety of assessments to include um, an IQ test, cognitive processing, several other assessments. And then they kind of say, okay, well, we know it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. So it's probably ADHD. And of course they get input from the families. They get input from the schools to see like, you know, check the boxes. Are they exhibiting these behaviors? We went to the child psychologist. We got the diagnosis. It wasn't a surprise. Of course, the next step is medication, right? So we started with medication. Um, We tried several different things. There's a wide variety of medication used in kids with ADHD. One of the medications that we used was actually a medication that in adults is used for adults who have high blood pressure. So it helps lower their blood pressure, their heart rate. There's long acting, there's short acting. There's things you can take only when you need it. There's things you can have to take all the time. You know, it's just a wide variety of things. So through our pediatrician really was where we were able to get some support about looking into what do we want to try? All of them kind of have to build up in the system. So it's not like, oh, I'll know tomorrow if this pill worked today. You know, you have to be on it for a little while. Um, But even with that I remember there was some there's judgment there too right because there's judgment if you do medicate your kid there's judgment if you don't medicate your kid or the other thing I got a lot which I think is very common especially in boys with ADHD is oh they're just busy right they'll just they'll grow out of it right it's just a phase and I'm like it's more than being busy it's more than having a lot of energy it's more than being hyper there's some real fundamental struggles that these kids are having that the hyperactivity kind of overtakes all of that because that's the thing that's most obvious, but there's some other issues that are going on that we really do need to support. Um, So he was on a variety of medications for several years. Once he got into elementary school, you know, it really depended on the year and the teacher. We had some teachers that were fantastic and they got him and they understood and they really wanted to help and support. And we had some teachers that just didn't get him, just didn't understand. I remember one year in particular, a teacher sending a note home that he had gotten in trouble because he was dancing in the hallway, you know, and I thought if that's the worst thing you did all day was dance in the hallway, like we're having a good day. Going back to what we're talking about parenting and, and the comparison trap, right, is what was good behavior 
behavior for him was different than what was good behavior for someone else. What he was able to do, what was effective for him looked very different. So dancing in the hallway one day wasn't really that bad. That was a pretty good day. Now somebody else who always followed the rules and did what they were supposed to do, maybe dancing in the hallway was a big deal. Wrapping your mind around that as a parent too, and looking at your own expectations for your children. Expectations are something I talk to parents that I work with a lot, families that I work with a lot, and the teachers I work with a lot. Like, what are our expectations? Are they developmentally appropriate? Not just age appropriate, but developmentally, are they appropriate? And why is this my expectation? Do I want you to do this because it'll make my life easier? Do I want you to do this because it's something I think you should do? Or do I want you to do this because I know you're capable of it and it's something that will help you be more successful? I just think as a parent, that's really, really important to think about. What are my expectations for my child, especially if I have as a child that has some special needs? Am I giving them high enough expectations to challenge them, right? Because we don't want to do everything for them. But am I also being realistic in what my expectations are for them? One of the books that I read about highly sensitive children was talking about how you almost have to grieve the loss of certain expectations for your kids because with really highly sensitive kids, they will likely never play soccer or football at a high level because Mm -hmm. the decisions that you have to make in a fast paced environment to play those types of sports are very Mm -hmm. stressful for sensitive children. Mm -hmm. So for moms and dads who place a high value on team sports and might Mm -hmm. have a highly sensitive child or just a child in general, who's just not bent towards wanting to play team sports, or maybe a child who does want to play team sports, but is not into art. And that's something that your family places a high value on is the arts. Like whatever it is that we as parents, I know I do project so much of ourselves and our own expectations onto our kids, particularly when your child has some sort of mental health issues or difficulties, you have to first grieve the loss of your own expectations and let go of your own expectations first. And then understand to raise an exceptional child, you have to be willing to raise an exceptional child. And so that means advocating for them. That means doing what they need, whether it's pushing them or giving them space Mm -hmm. to process or do things a little differently than the other kids. Again, because we live in such a comparison focus, everything's okay. Look at what my child or my life is like Mm -hmm. culture that often is not something that people are willing to do for themselves or for their children. Absolutely. And again, people don't know how to, right? So it's not to say like, you're a bad parent. If you you know, have these expectations for your kids. We all do. We all have expectations. We all have a a vision, right? For how we think our lives are going to go, how we think our kids are going to be, how we think we're going to be as parents. I mean, a lot of we fall short or that changes something in there changes. And that's okay because we, we don't know any different, right? You don't know what you don't know. And so if it is your first time as a parent, if you are parenting an exceptional child, if you have never done anything like this before, and you don't have a support system, or you don't have people around you, who have been there before, it is hard to know what to do. It is hard to know the right decision to make. I think one of the things you said about advocating, that honestly is the biggest 
thing you can do as a parent. And it's hard to do as sometimes it won't be the popular opinion. Sometimes again, people will tell you that you're overreacting or it's not that way. Or throughout the years, my son's in high school now and every single school year, you know, we have to advocate for different things. So when he was in elementary school was when we were able to get a 504 plan, which is just a list of accommodations in the classroom that the teachers are required to follow. So we have a role in that list. We we meet with the school counselor, we meet with the teachers, we meet with the administrators, and we talk about what are some accommodations that may be helpful for him? Um, what are some things that maybe we do at home that works? What are some realistic accommodations, right? I'm not asking you to do anything crazy. And then the teachers are required to follow those things. And if they're not, or if the accommodations change or the needs change, then especially with younger children, it's up to the parents to speak up and say something. You know, you have to say like, hey, this isn't working or, you know, hey, I thought we agreed to do this and and I haven't seen that come home. One of the accommodations that we've made in years past is emails getting sent home to the parents about how are things going? What's going on? You know, keeping me in the loop. And when I wasn't getting those emails, I had to write and say, hey, what's going on? I haven't heard from anybody for a few weeks. Let me know what's going on. And you might feel pushy or, you know, I don't want to be that mom or I know you're busy and you have 30 other kids in the classroom that you have to think about, but nobody else is going to advocate for your kid, right? Nobody else is going to advocate for your kid. Um, so you, you have to be the one, especially when they're younger, have to be the one to do that for them. Also, I think it's really important to teach children to advocate for themselves, be very honest and open about what's going on, what it is, what are your needs, listen to your kids, they will tell you even little ones can tell you in their own way, what is it that they need, and their needs will change over time, it'll change through the years. And so being able to listen to that, like you said, being able to put away my expectations or my thoughts about what you need, and really paying attention to to what is it that you need as they get older, encouraging them to like, speak up. If that doesn't make sense to you, speak up. If you need more help, say something, tell your teachers, talk to them after school, send an email. You know, my son, again, he's in high school now and he has done, I'm really, really proud of him. He's done a fantastic job in the last year or so advocating, especially through online school with COVID advocating for himself and just emailing his teachers and saying, this is what's going on. And I don't, it's not working for me and it doesn't make sense to me. And I need more support. Like that's huge. Cause that's the goal, right? Like we're not going to be around forever. These kids, like you said, this isn't a one-time thing. It isn't something that they're going to grow out of, right? These diagnosable things are here to say, eventually I'm not going to be here, right? I'm not going to be able to email the teacher. I'm not going to be able to send an email to your boss <laughs> and tell them what I think they should do, you know? So teaching our kids, any child, regardless of ability, teaching them to to speak up, to advocate for themselves, to say what they need, to ask questions, um, to tell people how they feel. That's a big one for me too. I think that's really, really important. The advocating piece as a parent is super important. And also as teaching your child to advocate for themselves. I could not agree more. In order <laughs> to teach your kid to advocate for themselves, that takes, like you said, listening to them. And it also takes time. I didn't know how much time and energy and how hard it would be to be a parent mm -hmm. before I had my boys. Yep. And we are at a stage with my oldest 
where he likes to process his day after his younger brother has gone to bed. They share a room, they go to bed together. And then my oldest will read for about 15, 20 minutes until his mm -hmm. younger brother's asleep and he'll come out and he'll want to process his day mm -hmm. with me. It's eight o'clock by then. I want my You're own tired. time. <laughs> Right, right. But if I am putting my child's need first and not in a martyrish way, mm -hmm. but being realistic about the time that it takes to parent and to help him learn coping skills and advocate for himself. I have now in the last probably month or two just learned, yep, at about eight o'clock every night, we're going to be out on the couch talking and processing his day right. because that is the best time to reach him. Every kid is so different, whether they're struggling with ADHD, sensory processing, autism, understanding the best times <coughs> to reach them yes. is super important too. Yep. And it may not yep. be a time that's convenient for you as the parent, but I signed up to be a parent. There are some yep. people who didn't sign up to be a parent. And right. so, you know, that's a whole other set of issues that we right. are definitely not qualified to address here today. But right. 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 for those of us who signed up to be a parent, it may be a different set of parenting issues than we thought we were going to get, mm -hmm. but it is incredibly important to recognize that this is what it's going to take to parent this exceptional child. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's where the support system comes in. That's where it's so important to get the resources and get the resources to to help your child, but also get resources to support you as a parent, because it's not easy. It, parenting never is easy. <laughs> Anyone is easy. You know, parenting an exceptional child, parenting somebody who responds differently, acts differently, needs different things isn't easy. And you, you need support. You have to have support. You can't do it alone. And a lot of people try to do it alone. And, and again, I think there's this feeling and, and I see this with families that I work with. I work with a lot of our families are their active duty military a lot of them are single parents. A lot of them are dual military. So both parents are active duty and they don't have a support system here. They live here because the military told them to live here. You know, they don't have family here. There's no real support. And I think there's a feeling of, I should be able, again, back to our shoulds, I should be able to do it alone, right? I should be able to handle this issue. I should be able to be the parent that this kid needs me to be. Why? Like who says that you should be all of these things, especially if you've never done it before. Why, why would you put that expectation on yourself? If you can find people that have been there before, especially in your particular instances, if you can find people that have been there before and made it out the other side, because we do all make it out eventually, that's even better because you, you gain a lot of information and experience, but also just that feeling of I'm not alone. I'm not the only person dealing with this. This this other person dealt with this and now they're okay and their kid is okay and he or she is successful and they're grown up and they have real jobs and they can, you know, be members of society. And sometimes it feels like that's never going to happen if you feel like you're doing it on your own. This conversation is so good for just me to have. <laughs> I'm loving it so much. But what are some of the resources that are available to parents of exceptional children, specifically in the public? public school system? Um, so there are a lot of resources available. Again, once kids hit about three years old, that's kind of the magic number age for receiving resources. One of the things I do want to mention, and maybe I should have said it earlier, but in regards to um, child development and brain development. So again, we know a lot more about child development than we knew even 20, 30, 40 years ago. And if we think about brain development in children, brain development, when you have a baby, right, that's growing in the womb, 
The first part of the brain to develop is the brain stem. It's the base, the bottom, the spine comes up, the brain is there on top of it. That's where it all starts. That part of your brain, because that's the first to develop, is the one that is in control of all of your feelings of safety, right? So we've all heard of this fight, flight, or flee. That's where that comes from. So if I do not feel safe, I can't do anything else because my base, my the core of my brain doesn't feel safe, isn't getting what it needs. I can't think straight. I can't listen to reason with me. I can't follow any directions. I don't feel safe. I need to feel safe. All children need that regardless of, of anything else. Then your brain kind of develops outward. The last part of your brain to develop is the frontal lobe. The frontal lobe is responsible for things like uh, decision-making, problem-solving, um, emotion regulation. Do you know what age most people's frontal lobe is fully developed? It's 25, right? Yes. Yeah. 25 years old, 25 years old is when the part of your brain that's responsible for decision-making problem solving and emotion regulation is developed. So when we have children, any child, especially kids that have special needs, and we're saying things to them, like, you just need to calm down. You just need to take a break. Just walk away. Just relax. They cannot they physically cannot because their brain isn't there yet, especially if they're in a state where they're uncomfortable, they're upset, they're angry, they're frustrated. And again, going back to the expectations, that's an expectation that we have. Well, I can look at the situation and see that this is the logical thing to do. I can look at this situation and see like, why are you so upset about this? It's not a big deal. It is a big deal to them. One, because of brain development and two, because children aren't tiny adults yes. and his, they don't think the same way we do. They don't operate the same way we do. Knowing that as a parent has helped me a lot. I hope helps other people too, just because you, you can now think like all of these things that I think my kids should do or shouldn't do. They physically aren't able to do those things. So sorry. I know that kind of went, took a hard left turn from your question. I thought that was so good. You know, I'm going to bring it back to an example with my oldest, with his high sensitivity, when he is upset, there is no use in yep. telling him to calm down or in literally doing anything other than just saying, I can see you're frustrated. I'm so sorry. Mm -hmm. I know that this is frustrating for you. Let's sit here together. Or if you don't want to sit here together, what would help you feel better right now? Just like we as adults have to get out of a shame spiral, or I talked about my eating disorder last podcast. I had to get out of binge purge cycles. Like when you're spiraling, you have to get out of the spiral first before you can get help. Right. And that's the yes. same for our kids. They have yep. to get out of a spiral first before they can listen and receive yes. help. Yes. And talking to them is not the way out of a spiral. Just it's like not. if I'm upset and angry about something, somebody coming and saying to me, you're fine. It's not a big deal. You're okay. Come on, let's go. Let's, that's not going to be helpful at all to me, right? Like I'm angry. I want to be angry. And so sometimes it can be as simple as a pat on the back. Like you said, sitting next to them, giving them space, giving them time. I've had kids where they have really, strong reactions to things, some kids that have some emotion regulation issues. And so they have really strong reactions and they're screaming and crying and screaming and crying. And I just go sit next to them and rub their back and they'll just kind of fall into you. Like, I want to be near you. I want you to hold me. I want you to hug me. And you don't have to say anything. 
You don't have to have the answer. You don't have to solve the problem. Just like you said, let them move through this cycle, through this phase. And then once we get to the other side of it, then we can figure out, hey, what can we do differently? What was going on back there? What could we do next time? But yeah, right in the middle of that is not the time to have these conversations about problem solving because they're not there. Their brain's not there. Nope, absolutely. Exactly. Getting back to the question that resources. I asked earlier, what are right. some resources? So okay. let's say we have someone whose child is entering kindergarten, okay. has entered kindergarten, and they are really realizing that their child is struggling. What are some of the resources that are available to them through the public school system? In most places, and I can't speak for all states, state to state is different because the school districts are different, but I know in California and a lot of places, once you turn three years old, you are qualified to receive services through the school district. Um, here in California at three years old, you don't have to be attending the school. It's obviously before you start kindergarten, but there are services available through the school district um, that can look like things like speech therapy, occupational therapy, behavioral therapy. They can do all sorts of assessments. The first place, if you're already in school, the first place to start would be uh, the administration at your school. Everybody has some sort of special education services office, right? They may call it something different. Everybody's got it. They're required to have it. You can go to your special education, your principal, your administrator, whoever it is and say, Hey, I'm having some concerns about my kid. I would like to talk to someone. I would like to get some assessments done. The school district can provide assessments for you. And again, this is where the advocating piece shows up because once you've entered into this process of asking for assessments, asking for services, like once you get to the point, like I said, we have the 504 plan. They have a set number of days to respond. So they can't say, oh yeah, good idea. We'll get around to that one day. You have, I believe it's like 30 days for them to respond and say, okay, we can do a 504. Let's set up a meeting. Let's talk about what we can do, whatever. Usually in the school setting, there's two different options. Um, most schools are really inclusive nowadays, meaning that they want to keep all kids in the same classroom as much as possible. So they provide accommodations to the, to the classroom so the child can stay among their peers. So you have a 504 plan, which is what we have. You also have an IEP which is an individualized education plan. IEPs are a little bit more advanced in depth maybe than a 504. Um, so for example, a 504 might have something on it like preferred seating in the classroom. So maybe my kid is going to sit towards the front of the classroom near closer to the teacher to pay more attention. One of the things my son had on his 504 was that he could listen to music um, in his headphones during certain times of the day where they were doing individualized work. So it was hard for him to work in silence. So he could have headphones on, he could have music as long as he was doing work on his own. Some of them might be things like you can stand up in the back of the classroom. If you have a hard time sitting for too long, you can stand up, you can sit on one of those yoga balls. We can bring a yoga ball in and you can sit there at your desk. IEPs, like I said, are going to be a little more intensive. It might mean having uh, services come in. So people coming in and working with your child one-on-one -on -one in the classroom at certain periods throughout the day. It might mean that you're going to have more time for tests or more time to complete assignments. It's a wide variety. And the thing about the services through the school district or through your school, not all schools are the same, but you can ask for whatever you want, whatever you think will be helpful. And you as a parent 
have a role, you play a role in creating that 504 and that IEP. So they will give you things that are maybe typical of children with these issues in the classroom, but that doesn't mean you have to do everything that they give you. It doesn't mean that you can't add other things on and you can change it whenever you want to. Typically you meet once a year to update and make sure everything's in line with the 504, the IEP. Um, but you can change it whenever you want. The biggest thing, if your child is already in school or if they're over three years old, I would say reach out to the school district because they have resources. Most of the time they're free because again, it's a service that the, the state pays for. That's really the best place to start because everybody's going to be in school. Every child is going to be in school at some point in some way. And so getting them into that system early is really helpful. Getting those intervention services early is really, really helpful. You said like for somebody whose kid has started kindergarten and just realized that they're having some struggles, 99% of the times you're realizing before kindergarten that there's something going on, depending on what it is, but you probably have some idea that there's something going on before kindergarten. Don't wait for kindergarten. Don't wait until they're five. Don't wait until they're enrolled in a school. You don't have to wait that long. If you're seeing things when they're younger, then get supports when they're younger, because the earlier you can get intervention supports and resources for yourself and for your child, the better off they will be, the more successful they will be. Yes. I love that. I also do want to take any shame off of anyone who is just now realizing that their elementary age child or their older child might be struggling with something. I did not fully realize that my oldest was struggling until kindergarten. So it will be okay. Take that pressure off of yourself. When you know better, you do better. Don't be afraid. Go to family therapy because we want to normalize that for our kids so that if down the line, there really is something that they are struggling with, we want them to just feel like a therapist is just someone who you talk to outside of your parents. Right. It's okay. The more we can advocate for our kids, the earlier we can advocate for them, the more we can take care of ourselves and the more that we can normalize any issue, whether it is mental health or just general parenting struggles, the better. And normalizing it for yourself and for your kids. Again, that goes back to talking to your kids about what, what is it? What is it called? What does it look like? That was always a big deal for me when my son was younger, especially was like, yes, you are different. You are different. And a lot of people see that you are different and you act a little bit differently. Different doesn't mean bad. Different doesn't mean less than. I remember when he was very young in elementary school, when he came home from school and he made a comment to me and he said, mom, I wish God would open up my head and give me a new brain. And it crushed me as a parent. And I said, there is nothing in the world wrong with your brain. I said, God made you. And I've told him this all the years since then, God made you exactly the way he wanted you to be. It's okay to be different. It's okay to feel things differently. It's okay to look differently, act differently, think differently, whatever the case may be, it doesn't equal bad. And again, I think we as a society have that idea in our head that, you know, because I'm different, because my child is different, that it means there's something wrong or I've done something wrong. That's just, it's not the case. I like that you brought God into the conversation because I know you and I are both Christians. I am a huge proponent of God plus things, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know, especially when it comes to mental health. Yes. Prayer works. Yes. Praying over our kids is incredibly important and helping them realize their value and the way that they were intentionally designed by God, Mm -hmm. regardless 
of what they may struggle with is so incredibly important. But just like Lauren and I have talked about throughout this whole series, I do think that you have to realize that God gave us medicine and resource mm-hmm. and therapy <clears throat> and interventions yep. absolutely, as part of the ways that he can help us and we can help our children. Absolutely. Do you have any good books or websites or resources that you would recommend to anyone listening to the podcast who might just want to explore options for their child? Yes. So I think there's a couple, and again, I'm, you know, my resources have come out of my, my job, most of them. So some of them are a little more specific to military, military families, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, anyone can use it. There's one resource that we use called virtual lab school. It's a program that was created by Ohio state university, and it's a program designed for educators. And so it's a series of modules like 13 lessons that they talk about that go over a variety of child development. So they talk about physical development, cognitive development, social emotional development. You can go, it's a public website. You can use this website. You don't have to be linked to any organization or affiliation or anything. And you can review all the modules and the courses. They have videos, they have articles. They also do um, periodically, they'll do webinars and just little lessons. And again, it's really good for parents or educators, I think, because it just, it talks a little bit about what, what do we do with those challenging behaviors? Um, what do we do when we've got kids who have been in online school for COVID for the last year and a half? That's one. It's virtuallabschool.org is the website. There's another website, a program called Conscious Discipline. There's a doctor, her name is Dr. Becky Bailey. She has created this program, Conscious Discipline, and it's for um, parents and again, educators. It's usually in a lot of school programs. It talks about, it goes into much more detail than I did about brain development, child development. And then it talks about some pillars and some things that you can do to help your kids to connect with your kids differently, to understand, like, again, when they're in the middle of this huge trauma, meltdown, throwing things, screaming on the floor, what is the best thing for me to do? What is the best way for me to support them? And then there's another website called zero to three, which if you just Google zero to three, you'll see there's just a lot of resources about kids in those ages, right? Just general parenting what can I do? How do I handle behaviors? How do I handle all kinds of things? Zero talking about sleeping through the night and bottle feeding and blah, 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 all these things. That's really helpful as well. So those are kind of the places I would start, like I said, are pretty easy to find on the internet and things that, that I think would be helpful to parents in just understanding whether you have a child with a diagnosable you know, issue or not. It's just some good resources because I think we all need more resources. Absolutely. Sarah, I cannot thank you enough for doing this today. Also, I think this is going to be a really valuable conversation for any parent, but specifically for parents who are struggling. We will link to all those resources that you just gave us in the show notes, and hopefully we'll have you back on the morning rage at some point. Yeah, I would love it. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm super thankful that Sarah was able to join me for this conversation. She's a, as you can tell, a very avid listener of the pod. We love that. So exciting for us. She referenced the pod so many times that it was very exciting. And she actually had approached us and said she thought it would be good to do this episode on mental health issues and kids. So guys, 
we do listen. If you have an idea for a podcast, we would love to hear it and we might actually do it. Yes. And if you'd like to be a guest on the show or suggest a guest on the show, we would be pretty excited about that as well. I know we have um, a couple fun interviews in the next couple months that people have reached out to us about. So I'm pretty excited. We're, we're doing it. We're really doing it. Uh, speaking of doing it. Oh my gosh. I think we're going to talk about doing it and hot stuff a lot today. Jen, I have a feeling that we have the same hot stuff. I can't imagine I'm wrong. Um, remember Benifer? I'm sorry. Did you even have to ask that question? No, no. I know that this is probably all you've had on your mind this week. There's rumors about maybe getting a Benifer 2.0. So we got Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck. There's some pretty hot rumors that they're maybe getting back together. I was sad when her and Alex Rodriguez broke up, but a Benifer reunion, those tears have been wiped away. Could you imagine anything better? So we had this beautiful love affair relationship back in the early 2000s. One of the hottest power couples, right? They were like always on a boat or like- Laying by a pool or a beach or rubbing sunscreen on each other's asses. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Wasn't he in one of her music videos? Rubbing sunscreen on her butt. Yes, I remember. Okay. So they met filming Julie- in 2002. Do you remember this movie? Did you watch it? I think I watched it years later, like after it had come out, just because there was so much hype about how bad this movie was. And I looked up the Rotten Tomatoes score. Jen, can you guess what the Rotten Tomatoes score would be on this? Like, what's the percentage? The percentage of bad? Lower is bad. Mm, I'm gonna go with like a five. Six uh, percent. <laughs> So they started dating like in 2002 doing that movie. They did it for two years till 2004. Did you remember that they had, they had gotten engaged pretty quickly and they called off the wedding four days before it was about to happen? I didn't remember that it was four days before, but I did remember that it was pretty close to the date of the wedding. They both went on to obviously marry other people, have babies. TMZ, rep- okay, so TMZ reported back in February, and this is super creepy. I don't know how TMZ knows this, that Ben and Jennifer had been emailing each other while she was filming in the Dominican Republic. And then after her split with A-Rod, it was reported that he was like leaving her house in like one of her cars. And this past weekend, they were photographed spending a few days together in Big Sky, Montana. I think the podcast was talking about how all these celebrities like to go to Big Sky to hide away. And it's because it takes so freaking long to get there. (laughs) Not cheap to take all these flights to get there. So paparazzi really can't find them. Also, they can be in a very remote location. Good for Benefer. Right? If you could resurrect any other couple, just for like nostalgia's sake, like maybe we, we don't even think they're like that good together, <laughs> but just like that, so fun. Like remember in 2000s when Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck were together, like what other couple would you resurrect? Do you even have to ask? I think it's the same for you. Brad Go Pitt for and it. Jennifer Aniston? Yes. <laughs> it would definitely be Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston. And I don't think we're alone in that. Oh, I secretly hope that they're doing stuff on the DL too. Hey, there's been talks about them hanging out, you know, as old friends, yada, yada, yada. But like times are different now. I think they could really like make another crack at it. I would also resurrect her and John Mayer. I love John Mayer. I love Jennifer Aniston. I thought it was kind of a weird pairing, but I kind of (laughs) liked it. I would also like to resurrect Trevor Noah and Minka Kelly, who I literally just saw 
before we popped on here, they broke up. Oh, sad. And they were one of your like hot couples that you love to follow. They're beautiful. Do you know how long they were dating? Maybe like a year. I think they dated all through the pandemic. I wonder if there's going to be a lot of splits because people are coming out of the pandemic, going back to work, doing stuff. Like during the pandemic, you could be together. It was good. You weren't really out there dating other people. Especially for the newer couples that got together during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. It's just going to be their pandemic love affair and it's over now. So sad. Okay, but let's close the loop on Benifer. Well, actually, I hope we never have to close the loop on Benifer. The eternity band that is Benifer that will last for all time. I just think that both of them have been through a lot now. Yes. They didn't have kids. They were hot, hot, hot celebrities back when they were dating. I think they've been through a lot. They've seen some stuff. They both have kids. I think it could work now. I agree. I think they're different people now, but they have the history of like when they were young. I think it's very sweet. I'm into it. I'm here for it. All right. Well, I'm going to let you get back to your Hawaiian vacay, girl. Well, this was fun. I wouldn't have missed this combo for the world. And so excited to be back in person with you soon. Who yeah. can know when that will happen? <laughs> Guys, as always, we feel that life is too short to stay silent, even remotely from Hawaii. And we are so thankful, Lauren. Why are we thankful? We're so thankful that you keep raging with us week after week. And we'll see you for another rage next week.